When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. In 1773, a man named William Hamilton was born. He was rumored to be a son of Alexander Hamilton and was born to a free black woman whose name I couldn't find. He grew up to become a prominent speaker and civil rights activist based in New York City. He made his living, though, as a skilled carpenter. During the time he was living in New York, the state had passed a law to establish gradual abolition, but there were still many slaves there in the early post-revolutionary war decades. William Hamilton opposed slavery, the Atlantic slave trade, racial prejudice in the U.S., and supported unity in the form of something called Pan-Africanism, which focuses on the interconnectedness of African peoples regardless of nationality or region of origin. He opposed the scientific racism of the 18th and 19th centuries that was used to help prop up white supremacy. He also opposed the African Colonization Society, whose mission it was to deport black people on the continent back to Africa, based on fears that free black people would incite rebellion in slave populations, and a belief that black people were inferior and unable to integrate into U.S. society. The project was white supremacist and opposed broadly by the African American community and the abolitionist movement. What little I could find on his personal life is that he was married and had two sons, Robert and Thomas Hamilton, who established and edited newspapers that dealt with African-American news and issues, the People's Press, the Weekly Anglo-African, and the Anglo-African Magazine. During the pre-Civil War era, the Weekly Anglo-African and Anglo-African Magazine became two of the most influential publications and helped raise support for the abolitionist cause. But my focus is on something William Hamilton did in 1808. He co-founded the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, which was an organization that offered aid and financial support to members. Sixteen years later, in 1824, a white farmer and his wife, John and Elizabeth Whitehead, purchased land near Summit Rock and Tanner Spring in New York. Back then, Summit Rock was known as Goat Hill. A year after he bought the land, he began to parcel it out and sell it off. During this time, the city of New York had not expanded to those areas and still had city limits a ways off. One of the buyers of Whitehead's land was a 25-year-old African-American man named Andrew Williams. During these years, it wasn't common for white landowners to sell to black buyers, but the Whiteheads seemed willing to do so. Williams made a living as a boot black and a cartman, 
basically shining shoes and driving a cart pulled by draft horses in the days before we had a trucking industry. He purchased three lots from Whitehead for a total of $125. And on that same day, Epiphany Davis, a trustee with the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, bought 12 lots for 578 in the same area. Both of these men were members who benefited financially from their membership in the New York African Society for Mutual Relief that William Hamilton had co-founded in 1808. The AME Zion Church directly bought six parcels that same week, and by 1832, at least 24 lots had been purchased by African Americans. Then another five acres were purchased by William Matthews, and his church, the African Union Church, also bought land in the area around that same time. The purchasers created a community on the land called Seneca Village, and more African Americans started moving there after slavery in New York was outlawed in 1827. In the 1830s, people from a nearby community, York Hill, were forced to move for the construction of a reservoir. Many of them migrated to nearby Seneca Village, and once the reservoir was completed, the granite walls formed the eastern border of the town. In May and June of 1834, in New York City, two prominent abolitionists, Arthur and Louis Tappan, underwrote the creation of the Female Anti-Slavery Society. When women were put out in front of the movement, this enraged the city's racists. At the same time, Arthur Tappan invited a black Presbyterian minister, Samuel Cornish, to sit with him in attendance at the Late Street Church. This caused additional furor, and when Reverend Samuel Cox pointed out that Jesus wasn't white, that just infuriated the racists even more. Then, in July of that same year, 1834, New York City was thrown into turmoil during a huge anti-abolitionist riot that lasted for a week. The first targets were prominent white abolitionists in their homes and churches. It was ultimately squelched by military force, but at times during the riot, the anti-abolitionists controlled large parts of the city. But before it ended, the riots had torn apart Five Points, which back then was a slum area that included a mix of black and Irish residents. White residents were warned to place candles in their windows as a signal so that their homes would be spared. Many people who were forced to leave after all this devastation found sanctuary and a new life in Seneca Village. When Ireland was hit with the Great Famine, the town welcomed new Irish immigrants. The new immigration from Ireland actually boosted the population by a full 30%. Both African Americans and Irish immigrants were faced with discrimination at that time. And there were also tensions between the two groups elsewhere. But in Seneca Village, there was community between the residents. And by 1855, one-third of the residents were Irish. That same year, there were 52 households in Seneca Village. And old maps indicate that the homes ranged from well-built large three-story structures to smaller shanties. But land ownership, which has ever been the metric of U.S. wealth, was much higher among black residents of Seneca Village than among those in New York City at the time. Many of the black residents were also financially secure by comparison to residents of the little African neighborhood that was near Greenwich Village during those years. Some of the homeowners in Seneca actually lived downtown in New York City 
and apparently considered their houses in Seneca to be investment properties or second homes. In the more than 50 homes within the community, and based on census records, it's estimated that by 1855, about 225 people populated the village. And on average, the residents were there for more than two decades, with three-fourths of the residents having lived there since 1840, but nearly all since 1850. People moved there, immigrated there, sought refuge there, prospered there. And none of that is surprising since Seneca Village had been planned by early investors who worked hard and committed to making it a place where people wanted to move and wanted to stay. Remember, it was founded on funding from the New York African Society for Mutual Relief Organization, which itself was a cooperative support tool. But the very high address stability of Seneca provided people there with a sense of security and permanence. During this time in New York's history, this area would have been considered countryside, semi-rural or rural. Seneca Village was not only home to the largest number of African-American property owners in New York before the Civil War, but it also offered political power for black people in New York. In 1855, there was no guaranteed right to vote for African-Americans, even if they were free and living in the North. For eligibility to vote at that time in New York, a black man needed to be a state resident for at least three years and own land valued at $250. The property and residency requirements did not apply to white people. So with this being the context, Seneca Village offered a means to gain a political voice for the black community in the state, at least for black men. In 1845, only 100 black people were eligible to vote in the entire state of New York, and 10 of those people were residents of Seneca. And only five years later, in 1850, Seneca's portion had increased to 20% of eligible black voters. These laws made it more difficult to vote for black people and communities in the decades leading up to the Civil War in a nation where race-based slavery was still legal. But this was why organizations like the New York African Society for Mutual Relief were so important. They created a cooperative of members who could support one another with things like buying property and building communities, not just for security and protection, but also to ensure access to power and a voice through their votes, which provided them at least some small participation in the process that governed their state. And the community was growing and thriving and even inviting and fostering diversity. They had their own churches, schools, graveyards, and even a local Irish midwife who serviced anyone in the community with a need. And even with discrimination and tensions, it was not only Seneca Village that was growing and thriving, but nearby New York City and the entire state of New York. In fact, other small communities like Seneca were starting to dot the landscape, Irish and German settlements with farms and livestock. The downtown New York City area was attracting wealthy white families and businesses as well. Prominent community members at the time included people like writer and attorney William Cullen Bryant, the son of a state legislator who went on to become editor of the New York Evening Post, a powerful platform in the community. People like Andrew Jackson Downing, a landscape designer and writer himself, editor of the Horticulturist magazine. Downing was married to Carolyn DeWint in 1838, 
She was the daughter of John Peter DeWint Jr., also known as J.P. DeWint, who himself was married to Caroline Amelia Smith, a granddaughter of the second U.S. President, John Adams, and niece of the sixth U.S. President, John Quincy Adams. DeWint had substantial business enterprises and real estate holdings in freight and shipbuilding. Downing also collaborated on high-profile national projects like the grounds of the White House and the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., Downing met prominent architects and artists while on a trip to England. He traveled to England and Europe, as many wealthy New Yorkers were prone to do. Many of them were impressed during those trips with some of the sprawling estate gardens and public parks that they saw while there. Members of the city's upper class began publicly calling for the construction of a new large park in Manhattan, similar to the ones they'd seen abroad. Believe it or not, due to the lack of parks and open public spaces, most wealthy families went for family recreation in large cemeteries, where they would picnic and allow their children to play. But as U.S. cities were growing, a need and a desire for public recreation spaces was growing as well. And eventually, Downing got with William Bryant, and they put together the Special Committee on Parks. And after surveying for an appropriate plot upon which to create the park, they landed on a spot called Jones's Wood, which was a 160-acre tract of land along the Upper East Side of the city. The acquisition was controversial because of its location, small size relative to other potential uptown tracts, and its cost. But Bryant was advocating for that particular property. However, the families living on that particular tract were wealthy and well-connected, and they resented being asked to give up their homes and property for the park project. Downing actually expressed that he would prefer finding a larger plot of at least 500 acres, but a bill was passed to secure the plot for Jones's wood. Shortly afterward, the residents successfully obtained an injunction to block the acquisition, and they eventually won a case that determined that the transaction was, in fact, unconstitutional. A second attempt was made to secure Jones's wood, but it also failed. So the Special Committee on Parks moved to an alternative choice, a plot much larger at 750 acres. They labeled this new park concept Central Park and it gained acceptance and support from the New York City elites. The New York State Legislature passed the Central Park Act in July 1853, which authorized purchasing land for the park using a Central Park fund to raise money. It was around this time that the media, a field both Bryant and Downing navigated in their careers, began denigrating the rural and semi-rural properties outside the city, using racial slurs, describing the communities in pejorative terms. As one writer put it, quote, As the city pushed north, the media began to paint a different picture of the little village, calling it a shanty town, and calling the property owners squatters who were wretched and debased. Many people in the city, including Mayor Fernando Wood, wanted the land for a great new park, unquote. They began to describe the residents as criminals, accusing them of theft and illegal operations. One of their largest detractors was engineer Egbert Ludovicus Viele, who would be the lead engineer on the Central Park project. 
And notable author Washington Irving helped with PR and to inspire public confidence in the project. Cynthia Copeland, president of the Institute for the Exploration of Seneca Village History, who has spent decades uncovering the story of Seneca Village, said, quote, There was a smear campaign that was created in the media. We've got to get rid of all those people that live in the park that shouldn't be there. They're tramps, squatters, thieves. This is the kind of language they used, end quote. In 1855, Mayor Fernando Wood used the power of eminent domain to claim the land. Those who owned their land were provided what local authorities deemed was adequate compensation. Those who did not have title to the property were simply driven out of their homes, which were destroyed to make way for the new park. The city sent the police to clear out the people still living there who had no place else to go. For two years, the residents resisted the police as they petitioned the courts to save their homes, their churches, their schools, but in 1857, they were all forcibly removed. As one newspaper put it, the raid upon Seneca Village would, quote, not be forgotten. As many a brilliant and stirring fight was had during the campaign, but the supremacy of the law was upheld by the policemen's bludgeons, unquote. Many neighboring communities were likewise appropriated, some German, others Irish. But only the African-American men were stripped of political power and voices by losing that land. Without the property holdings, their right to vote was also being stripped, providing white voters in the area with more authority and more power to govern. The only structure that survived the raising of Seneca was All Angels Church, which was relocated nearby out of the area designated for destruction. Through the years, the history was forgotten. But now and then, artifacts turned up. In 1871, workers uprooting trees were surprised by the discovery of two coffins. And half a century later, the whole graveyard was discovered by a gardener at the park, now known as Gilhuli's Burial Plot, named after the gardener. Actual recognition of Seneca Village, after it was raised and forgotten, wouldn't occur until a century later, when a man named Peter Salwin noticed some discrepancies on area maps. They seemed to contradict the reputation of the former village as simply being open land used only by squatters and criminals. He noted that the architecture was considerably more impressive than he had been led to expect. This was in the 1970s, and Salwin wrote more about it in a book published at the end of the 1980s. His published observations renewed interest in the history of the area prior to the creation of New York's now-famous Central Park. And in the 1990s, a book that delved farther into the history was published by co-authors Roy Rosenzweig and Elizabeth Blackmar. In 1997, the New York Historical Society then supported more research and even archaeological excavations into the area that lasted into the 21st century. Other researchers started working to find descendants of Seneca residents and founders, and some were found. In fact, researchers began engaging with historians, church records, and community groups to form a research plan. Their goal was to find any traces of the former community. 
They started with imaging tests, and students were enlisted to help go through the archives and support actual remote sensing, radar, and soil boring. This was in the early 2000s, and their efforts were successful. They took their case to the New York City Department of Parks and the Central Park Conservancy, and they received permission to start excavations in areas that looked most promising. Digs took place from 2004 to 2011. The excavation yielded 250 bags of artifacts, including clothing and household items like dinnerware and toothbrushes. And in 2020, New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission created an online exhibit with around 300 pieces from the excavations. Seneca inspired Keith Joseph Adkins' play, The People Before the Park, as well as an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art entitled Before Yesterday We Could Fly, which explored the hypothetical scenario in which the village had not been destroyed and the descendants allowed to exist and continue to thrive on the land. But art and history is not all that Seneca Village inspires. It has since been used as a cautionary example of racialized community displacement and modern urban renewal initiatives. In February of 2022, Ellie Marshall published an article in The Nation giving his thoughts on events like these, in which he described the following. Quote, the government had the authority to buy or take the land for Central Park under the doctrine of eminent domain, which is enshrined in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. Eminent domain is the theory that all land, even private property, can be acquired by the government if it is in the public interest. To understand eminent domain, you have to appreciate that if you start from first principles, all land is public. All land is just there, claimed only by whoever or whatever happens to be standing on it and can physically defend it at a particular time. It's all God's land if you're into that sort of thing, or the king's land if you lived in pretty much any pre-enlightenment society. Unlike private property, eminent domain does flow naturally and inevitably from the concept that ownership exists only insofar as the state is able to secure and defend the territory. If the state needs your land for some public purpose, and you can't raise an army to oppose the state, your land is forfeit. Living in a state that is willing to pay for the private land it needs to take is just a modern invention for property owners who would otherwise get screwed if they happen to live on land the state needs. Now, I would love to tell you what James Madison, author of the Fifth Amendment, meant by just compensation, but I can't. I can't even tell you why eminent domain is tacked onto this amendment and not some other. I can tell you that Madison's initial proposed language was, no person shall be obliged to relinquish his property where it may be necessary for public use without just compensation. Congress changed it to its final version, but I can't tell you why. No record of whatever debate may have occurred exists. No Federalist paper focuses on this particular topic. What I can tell you is that when white people want your shit, they will take it, and black people will rarely be justly compensated for the destruction of their wealth. Robert Moses was a deeply racist man who built highways, bridges, parks, beaches, and even housing projects by bulldozing the hopes, dreams, and often the homes of the people in his way. 
declaring a community blighted or a home condemned is a favorite trick of the government when it wants to avoid paying just compensation for the land it takes. It's what Moses did repeatedly throughout New York City in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and into the 60s. Moses would target a community, have state assessors declare it a slum, and acquire the land through eminent domain at cut-rate prices, and it's a method many cities and states would copy under the guise of urban renewal. Clearing out the slums and replacing run-down and dilapidated-looking buildings with fresh, shiny, economically productive buildings and infrastructure sounds like a great plan, unless you are the person being cleared out. Then, not only are you being displaced from your community— your just compensation becomes slum prices, leaving you only enough money to go and try to find a different slum to live in. The government usually doesn't pay people in so-called blighted communities what their homes are worth, and it never pays them what the land will be worth after all the happy-clappy urban renewal takes place. This is why eminent domain so often takes advantage of vulnerable people and communities. The government doesn't actually want to pay a fair price for the land and doesn't want to fight legal battles against well-connected and powerful communities who can protect their property and interests in court. End quote. In 2022, CBS News featured a story on Seneca Village that included interviews with descendants. The following is pulled from that piece. Cal Jones, Manhattan Borough historian emeritus, has spent thousands of hours researching the residents, taking on the job of trying to find out where the villagers went and who are their descendants. Take Andrew Williams, the shoe shiner, whom he described as a visionary. Quote, I looked at the Andrew Williams Seneca village as sort of like a puzzle. Now let me put the pieces of this puzzle together to see this beautiful picture, unquote. And last year, that picture became a lot clearer when someone with a familiar name heard about this quest and reached out. It almost felt like I found a treasure, said Andrew Thomas Williams IV, the great-great-great-grandson of Andrew Williams. He and his wife, Mariah, didn't realize the connection to Seneca Village until a researcher messaged them on Facebook. And suddenly, the history of Seneca Village became the history of their family. My great-grandfather had a music school where he taught music, Andrew said. It made the whole Andrew Thomas Williams line so much better. I really, truly get that connection. It's not just a name. Sally asked Mariah Williams, how did that feel to you? It gave me a sense of being and a sense of pride, she replied. So I walk a little taller and I feel a lot stronger. When they toured Seneca Village, they just had to share the news. I remember the tour guide saying, we haven't been able to locate any descendants, Andrew laughed. And so then I said, descendants right here, said Mariah. Oh, they started clapping. They were excited, said Andrew. One day, Andrew Thomas IV said he'll pass along a family heirloom to his oldest son, a ring with an A that belonged to his great-grandfather a precious reminder to keep telling the story. As Mariah noted, there are other descendants out there. Yes, the story just has to be put out, said Andrew, and I think then we'll learn a whole lot more than the little we know now. And knowing the whole story, man, wow, that's got to be amazing when that comes out. 
All we can do is honor the past, Mariah said. Nothing covered can ever be healed. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.